You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So again, we're going to read from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. So once you get there, if you're able, would you please stand with me and we're going to read God's word together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put away all, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year to you. My name's Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, thanks for joining us on this New Year's Day. Glad that you're here. The 1045 crew, the grogginess is in the room, all right? I know you guys stayed up later than the 9, and I was surprised the 9 had a lot of people in it, and I was proud of them, uh, and I told them so. But this morning, I'm talking about uh, New Year's. I'm talking about resolutions. I'm talking about goal setting, and so you're in the right gathering, okay, because I have news for you that the 1045 groggy people are going to love, okay, and primarily that I want to spend some time laying out a kind of New Year's primer for you, so I'm, and I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush, okay, some of you are type A in the room, and you're like, I chose to be here, and I'm good for that. For those of you who are anything like me, I'm giving you permission to start your New Year's tomorrow, okay? Start your New Year's resolutions after the sermon in the name of the Lord. Um, And the reason I say that is I think New Year's is a great opportunity for God honoring goal setting, all of those things. Um, I really do think that. I also think that there are potential dangers for the Christian if we don't approach something like resolutions with a gospel framework, And so that's what I want to talk about. This scripture, Paul wrote to the Colossian church not to tell them about resolutions. However, he wrote to the church at Colossae, and it's applicable to a time like ours when we're thinking about all of the things that we want to see changed, all of the things that we wish we could grow in, because this is a sanctification text. This is a text not about goals that we might have to attain salvation or to be justified before God, because the Christian knows we are justified by grace as a gift, not by our own works. 
But this text is about sanctification. How are we growing in the image and likeness of Jesus? And for the Christian, if that's not what New Year's resolutions are about, well, then we already have a fundamental problem, okay? So let's spend time in the text. Before we do, what I want to do is pray for us. And if you're willing, I'm going to pray over you, and I'm going to pray over your family. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us through the power of God's word. And so if you'll bow your heads, let me pray. Father, first of all, thank you. Thank you for another year of life. Thank you, my God, that what lies ahead of us, you know, although we don't, and that you have promised to be with us, to never forsake us. And we thank, thank you, God, that we can be sure of your presence. And not just of your future presence with us, but your presence with us this morning. Thank you, God, that you have promised that you will provide for us that which we know that we need and that which we don't even know that we need. And so, Holy Spirit, we do ask now that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you might meet those needs this morning. We pray it corporately as a church, but we pray it individually. As we approach a new year, we ask, my God, that you'd give us spiritual eyes to see and that through the power of your word this morning, you might uncover the things that we uh, are ignorant to in our own lives. And also we ask that you would uncover the treasures in the vast troves of your grace that might call us to yourself, that we might experience real joy and celebration and worship before we leave out of here this morning. Help us, my God, to become more like you. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So I want to put the, the development of New Year's resolutions in three major categories. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, this isn't going to be uh, exhaustive, but I think that it'll be helpful. The first is more instinctual. When a person begins, like, it, maybe you've already done this. Like I said, there's some of you who are type A, and you're already on the ball. You've already decided that you're not eating for 30 days, and you're, you're hungry right now. Um, and you've already got your plan, you know. Um, the, the most, I think, basic level of developing resolutions is instinctual. And what we do is we based our resolutions on the environment that we live in and how to live in that environment in a way that maybe makes us, let's just say, wealthier or healthier or happier. How can we engage with the environment at our jobs or with our families in a way that promotes growth, that promotes joy, that promotes happiness, that promotes social mobility? And this is, I think, basic and fundamental. I'm not trashing this. I'm saying it is how we operate. And you may think, oh, I'm not really like that. I don't really care about wealth and all those things. Well, I don't mean it only in that sense. I mean instinctual in the sense that in the same way an animal might, you know, create their den to be a little more, let's say, defensive against the weather and the elements. I joked with the 9 o'clock service. Some of you may have already decided that you're going to get Pex piping this year because you don't want it to freeze and explode in your house. And I only say that because that's what we're doing. Okay? And that's very instinctual. It makes sense. Maybe you've decided this year you know that you want to have better relationships at your job, so you want to make some superficial or personality changes in order to engage better with your boss, who you really don't like but you need to like because, or need, you need him to like you or her to like you so that, you know, there's some movement. And these are all basic. They're fundamental. The second goes beyond just our instinctual kind of gut, it, and it's more intellectual. And this happens at the individual level. And you start thinking, well, I want to go beyond just kind of our animal herd instinct, and I want to go into more of what, what, what makes us different. If you're a Christian, you know what makes us unique from the creatures is that we're image bearers of God. So intellectual capacity, you start saying, well, I want to aim higher than just being, you know, maybe a little bit above my peers. 
So we look for people. And in particular, we look for people that have that which we desire to have, and then we look to attain that. So we base our resolutions on the people that we admire, or in the, in the sinful sense at times, the people that we covet. And this, of course, happens. But then there's the third. I think it's Paul's way. It's the Pauline way that he's laying out here. It's a spiritual way. And it's basing your resolutions not on your own instincts, not on your own will to ascertain influence or power or prestige or whatever from an, like another has, but you base your resolutions on Christ's will and on his person and who he is and how you can be conformed to his image. Now you may be saying, I'm not really that hero guy. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be like anyone, but I just want to tell you, yes, you do. You have someone that you're looking up to, whether you know that or not. You know, some of you are like, I want to be, I want to have this, at least the amount of success that my dad had uh, or my mom had. And then I know there's someone in the crowd that says, I hate my father. And I would say, okay, you're just doing it negatively. And by that, I mean, you're saying, I don't want to be like him, but you're still using that as a marker through which you're developing your goals. I hate my mother. Well, you're just negatively not being like her is the goal. Does this make sense? So we all have them. And what we might be doing is just making an amalgam version or a conglomerate of a lot of different attributes, and there's this person that we're trying to become like. Paul is telling us that that is hardwired into us and that the image that we should be looking to is the person of Jesus Christ. That anything less than that will ultimately lead us to disappointment. Anything less than that cannot satisfy. He's saying the spiritual way is to set your mind on the things that are above. He's telling us that we have to apply an eternal perspective as we approach something like this time of reflection in the new year, I think it's essential that we have a time of spiritual reflection and ask, do we have an eternal perspective? So let's read the first four verses. This is Paul's words. I want to make note that he starts with a line that tells us he's speaking to Christians. And so I want to make clear that if you're in the room and you're just not sure if you're a Christian or you're sure you're not a Christian, that applying these standards to yourself is getting the cart before the horse. What I'm about to tell you is not the list of things that you need to do to be approved by God. Because if you develop a list that you're going to do these things in order for God to approve of you for salvation, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ has already attained that for you. And that now what we're talking about is sanctification. What is Christ doing in the saved person's life to make them look more like the image of the invisible? That's what Colossians 1 started with. He is the image of the invisible God. And that God has an intention to make us like Jesus. Okay, so let's start here. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, that's parentheses, if you're Christian, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So you need to seek and you need to set your mind. This is a whole person admonition. With your heart and soul, you seek diligently. That's what Jeremiah 29 and 13 tells us. And that your mind would be the intellectual knowledge growing in your thought, thinking about the things of God. And he's making a declaration that there are the things that are above and there are the things that are on the, that are on the earth. These are symbolic. When you set your mind on the things that are above, on Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, and on the eternal things, what begins to happen is a separation a clarity sets in. The Spirit of God comes in to help us to see what is earthly in us, or fleshly, that's what Paul's saying, and what is 
heavenly, that which Christ desires to birth in us, heavenly things. If you think about this, this mirrors the Lord's Prayer. When we say things like, your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. There's this, the above and the below, and we're praying that God's will will be done below as it is above. You see this distinction? This is the flesh and the spirit. It's constantly throughout the New Testament. And this separation is key. It's particularly key to developing something like God-honoring resolutions. Because without your mindset on Christ, if you're only operating on the earthly level, which that's what we do by nature, okay? But if you only operate with your resolutions on the earthly level, then you may say, I want to stop doing one earthly thing, but it will only be able to be substituted with another earthly thing because you have eliminated any ability to substitute it with the heavenly thing. Let me give you an example. Now I'm gonna go out on a limb. I did this with the nine. There's gonna be at least one of us who've decided that you're gonna lose weight. I feel like I'm in safe ground. I'm in safe waters to just go on a limb and think that that may be true for at least one of us. Now, here's what I mean by substituting only earthly without the heavenly. The way that we recognize the need to lose weight is important because it most likely, for many of us, is not to look to Christ and recognize that we have an unhealthy relationship with food and therefore repent to the king to find life in him, but most of the time, and I'm just, I'll just speak for myself, it may be looking, and I'm not really a big social media person, but let's just pretend, maybe looking on social media and seeing someone else and coveting your neighbor's physical appearance and then saying, I have to be different. I need to be like that. And this happens with guys and girls, okay, but, but statistically speaking, it's a little bit skewed in one direction. And so it, it may, and I'm not saying all the way, because there are some guys that are, I make fun of you, you're my friends, but we might mock you about this because, you know, you shouldn't be looking at dudes, you know, on Instagram or whatever. But anyway, uh, just generally, I just, that's a personal opinion. But, but gals, this typically happens where you look and say, um, not, I, I want to have a healthy relationship with food to honor the king, but I see this other girl, this other guy, she's beautiful and I need to look like her. Um, of course, this happens to moms after they have their children. Look at this mom who had a baby, and then look how quickly they became this Instagram model. I got to do that. Now, what happens is because we have not looked heavenly to develop that resolution, because let me say, being, there's nothing wrong with being healthy. In fact, I think that it's God-honoring. But the motivation matters, and because we didn't look up, we only have the tools that are at our earthly disposal and so what happens is you trade something like gluttony for covetousness, which is really a downgrade. I'm no longer going to have an unhealthy relationship with food, but now I'm just going to covet the models that I look at online and covet their bodies, covet the way they look. And Paul says that's idolatry, which I say it's a downgrade because if we read the Old Testament, idolatry never ends well, right? And this is no way for the Christian to go about goal setting. We have to have a heavenly mind because we know as Christians we need heavenly help because what Christ intends to make us into is greater than what we intend to put down on our goal sheet. I need to say that again because I think we really need to get this into our heart. What Christ desires for you and particularly who he desires for you to be is not inferior to your desires for who you want to be, but superior. 
Christ and who he has designed you to be and who he is making you to be, according to the scriptures, is a greater vision for you than you could ever develop in that 2023 planner that you bought on Etsy. I'm not against that. I'm just saying, whatever you write there pales in comparison to what verse four tells us when we appear with him in glory, what he's gonna make you into be, okay? I'll give you examples. You may desire to be better looking and that is why you got Nutrisystem packed in the pantry, okay? And I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not hammering you on that, great. But remember that Christ desires to make you glorious. That's an entirely different level. He is making you glorious, not just thin. And he wants you to join him in that glorious vision. And that doesn't mean that you can't go to the gym, okay? But which one are we after? Is it the vision that we saw, the lesser earthly vision that we saw in a magazine or on you know, Instagram, or is it the heavenly vision of glory that we saw that led us there? You may desire to be liked or maybe just at bare minimum more likable. But Christ desires to make you righteous and blameless and holy. You desire to be out of debt and good. But Christ desires for you to experience his provision in abundance. Hmm. You may desire to read your Bible in a year. And I just want to tell you as a pastor, why would I ever discourage that? However, Christ's desire is for the word of God to dwell in you richly. That's superior to anything we could ever imagine, isn't it? About our Bible reading plans. You may desire to be a better husband, men. And, and I'm all for that. You know, you, you probably, December 31st, you're like, I need to live in a way that she yells at me less. And who would disagree with that? But Christ desires to make you a spiritual leader of your home. And that is far superior than merely, you know, little less arguments. Imitation and who we're deciding to imitate provides motivation. And motivation matters because what drives you will ultimately be what must sustain you through the times that will be difficult. Let me explain. If your desire originates from your earthly self, not only are you destined to only get earthly results, but you also must only rely on earthly strength to carry out that vision. But On the other hand, if your desires are born from heaven above, not only should you you expect supernatural results, but you should expect the help of heaven to carry through that action because it's the will of God and not man. So why do we pray with confidence? Because we're praying that which God desires, and therefore we can be confident that he'll come to help. So it's saying something like, I want to lose weight so I can be, you know, a little better looking versus I want to honor my God with my life, including my belly. The Holy Spirit rides on the wings of the latter desire because it's God honoring and Christ exalting. So our desire has to be Jesus who is above, gaining more knowledge of him, deeper union with him, becoming more like him. And I say this not merely because we're Christians, but because Paul is telling us Christ must be our aim because anything less will not satisfy you and it will leave you disappointed at best. Obviously destroyed at worst, right? Because that's what idolatry does. 
So he's going to break us up into two categories. And I'm just going to say this might be helpful for us to look through when you think of our resolutions. The two categories that Paul pulls out for the Christian is things that must die or the things that are going to fall away and the things that must come to life. Now you may be saying, I'm not really familiar with that or used to that. You do it all the time, okay? It's what a diet is, okay? I'm not going to eat Doritos at midnight anymore. That has to die. I'm going to eat broccoli, fresh, for lunch. That has to come to life. And then, of course, the rest of all of your planning is to mitigate what you know is coming. You know, the blogs have already told you, day six, the cravings will be worse. Day seven, they're at their worst. Find a friend to call you and hold you accountable, right? Because you know you can't change the desire for the Doritos. So what do you do? You try to go to bed at eight because you know at midnight your wife's asleep. Okay, I'm just telling you my whole life. It's a life story, all right? You try to go to bed earlier so that you're not there alone staring at that red bag. I'm just kidding. So things that are going to die, of course we do this all the time, things that have to fall off, and then there's the things that have to come to life because, you know, you can't just decide that you're going to go on the Gandhi diet forever and eat nothing. You have to eat something, right? And so what is it that you're going to eat? You're trying to replace it with that which is better. Well, Paul is going to use that same category, but I want you to take note on what he says needs to die and what needs to come to life. Let's start in verse 5 with what first must die. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self. Key line here, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, what do you notice about these things? Here's the first thing you're going to notice. You're going to notice it within the second list too. Most of them we don't have on our list for resolutions. Okay, and there's a reason for that, and here's why. Because these are internal, unseen, spiritual things that are root issues. You ever see this, uh, you know, the memes that float around on the internet with the iceberg? The iceberg from what you see versus the rest that's beneath the surface. We see fruit issues that we want to address, usually because other people recognize that fruit issue in our life and it embarrasses us. So we need to start clipping those fruits and getting them off the tree so that people admire the tree. But Christ is about the business of getting to the root of the tree, the things that we have no intention of ever addressing. And Paul says that we should go there, that what has to die actually is deeper and spiritual and unseen. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lies usually don't make the Etsy calendar, okay? You know, because you at least, if someone were to pick it up and read it, you hopefully wouldn't want to put it in there. I'm going to be a not liar this year. Be like, my gosh, this woman was a liar for 20 years. Even though you know deep down, that's probably something that we all, you know, I'm going to be a not gossip this year. You know, we don't put those things down. But Paul says the old self has to be put off and the new self has to be put on so that we can be renewed after the image of our creator who is Christ, not after the image that we saw on social media and coveted. Okay. 
Now, you got to love Paul here because he uses an aside, like a little sentence here. If you missed it, it was so intense. You read it and you're like, wow, this is why this verse never makes, you know, magically like the coffee mug because of this line. And it starts in verse six. So he's saying, hey, you got to put these things to death. And then he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's like you don't invite Paul over for like, you know, hanging out with the kids. He throws that line in there. Like, why you got to talk about that? Well, here's why. Don't be afraid of this text. Okay, don't be afraid of that verse or, or holding on to that verse. And here's why. It's fundamental to the understanding of the gospel. Every Christian believes that God created us in his image and that through sin, the wrath of God, the curse of sin, the wrath of God abided on all of humanity until a perfect atoning sacrifice was made. And that sacrifice came in the person of Jesus Christ. He absorbed that wrath like a sponge for us on our behalf. And now we no longer live under the wrath of God. But Paul's just reminding us that some of the sin that still tries to entangle you is the very reason Jesus had to die. So he's teaching us that this is even bigger than just like resolution life, that bigger than your resolution to lose five pounds, these issues are at the core of what it means to be human and what it means to be in Christ. That these spiritual issues should take so much more of our time than you could ever imagine because we're talking about things that are eternal. And Paul wants to remind us of that. He's bringing our attention to that. But he's doing another thing that I think For me, this really brought me some hope, and I hope it brings you the same. Because he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, in these two you once walked when you were living in them. So he's, uh, this is pastoral Paul, subtly making sure that the congregation doesn't say, that's right, bring the wrath on all those sinners. He says, sinners like you. Remember, you were that sinner. And I just picture Paul kind of going through the crowd. You, Susie, and you, and you, and you. Remember your marriage. My goodness, your marriage, you know. And they kind of go through. You were those people. And then listen to this, though. Listen to the next line. This is key. Not only does he say that they were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Meaning that Paul seems to be insinuating that there is still sin that we haven't put away. And the reason that gives me hope is that Paul, although he seems like a superhero, is very honest about the fact that he still struggles with sin. The penalty of sin paid for by Jesus on the cross gives us confidence that we can stand before him boldly, and yet we know that we're still struggling against the power of sin, each one of us. And so what that should do for you is bring you a breath of fresh air to say, if even Paul could admit that, so can I. And it's essential that we do, because anything less than that is to hide it. Anything less than that is to pretend Anything less than that is idolatry. So he says, you got to put them all away. So what do we need to do? We have to look into a spiritual mirror and see beyond the superficial. Heed the Spirit's urging. Peer inside our hearts as the Holy Spirit shines light to see what's lurking there. See what's gnawing at us. The question for resolution should be something like, what are the snakes in the house that we have hemmed into a closet in the hope that they would not get out and disturb anyone else? but we've still domesticated them enough that we let them live there. That's what Paul doesn't want you to do. He's saying, hey, put all these things to death because in the same way that only a fool would let the snake sleep in the closet next to the bedroom with the kids, so you would be a fool if we allowed sin to go unchecked in our lives and not repent of it in our families. What are the sins we treat with kid gloves rather than heavy artillery? We should ask ourselves these questions. And Paul's bringing this very sobering reality, but he's bringing it to unify us all. And that's why he tells us in verse 11, 
that who does this apply to? Everyone. Listen to what he says. Here, there, so here, underneath sinful proclivities, battling with sin, needing to put to death sin, who is included here? He says this. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So he says, who's all here? Everyone. No distinctions. Everyone has to make this battle a serious front that they're willing to take up arms on. Because why? Because this is a human condition, not a specific group condition. Sin is a human condition. And what that should do for you is two things. It should be, ah, that gives me a breath of fresh air because I know that I'm not alone. And also, it's not all about me, but that's why we live in community to minister one to another. Because you're, if you're married, you're sitting next to and you're with your arm around a sinner and a saint all at once. Complicated people. And husbands, you didn't need me to tell, tell you that. They're complicated. That's a joke, by the way. Women are like, don't start. It's the first of the year. All right. That's the first category. What needs to die? Well, it needs to die is what's earthly in us, sinful in us, broken in us. Yes, even the righteous in the room, that means you. You have these. But then what needs to come to life? Let's go on. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but again, probably not on our lists. I just want to read through these because these are things that don't even make like your conver- our, our conversations. Compassionate hearts. You know, we didn't go to GNC to get vitamins for compassionate hearts this week. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love. I want you to notice how many of those things are relational in nature. In order for you to have a compassionate heart, you must have someone on whom the compassion terminates. In order for you to be kind, you must have someone on whom the kindness terminates. Humility, who we humble toward. Well, yes, first to God, but how do you know that we're exercising humility? It's usually in how we interact one towards another. Meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, all of these are interpersonal. And without all these attributes that Christ values and we devalue, the most important thing to mention is that Paul tells us that we will make shipwreck of our faith. We need them, even though we don't think we need them. But we do need them. And we'll not only make shipwreck of our faith, but we can make shipwreck of our families and our communities. And so I want to close with a few thoughts. And if you don't hear anything else that I say, this is really important. This is more of a pastoral talk. We have a lot of young families, um, you know, uh, young, young marrieds, you know, you don't have to mention this too much. Kids running around, you know. So the time is sparse in marriages. Uh, and honestly, you don't even really have to have kids for that to, to be true. 
um, you know, if you have two working people and it's just the time sparse. And, and I think that sometimes what can happen is you get to like resolutions and it's really just like, you got to get the basic levels here. It's like, you know, it's kind of like whenever you, the more kids that you have or the more difficult things get, it's like, you know, don't die is like your number one resolution. You know, you're just trying to keep it minimal here. Um, and I'm just being honest. You don't have tons of time to think much else. You know, it's like, I remember being 19. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to, you know, want to be, you know, be really fit or really strong. It's like, now I just, you know, want to go to the heart and heart doctor and make sure everything's good. That's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> yeah. Hoping to have a checkup and everything's not going to kill me. That's pretty much it. Uh, and so I say this to, I know that that's who I'm talking to is that group of people. And what tends to get put on the back burner, particularly are the things that matter most, not just in your own soul, but in your marriage, your relationship. See, sometimes what we think is, you know, I'm going to avoid big catastrophes in my marriage or in my relationship or, uh, by just avoiding some glaring sign that says like, you know, infidelity this way. It's like, oh, I don't turn there. You know, like that's how it's going to work. And uh, I want you to know Satan's way more crafty than that. His scheme is not to get those signs shining on you, but instead to sow seeds of discontentment in your heart slowly but surely so that you can make slight compromises with time, slight compromises internally before they're ever external compromises. And they may not even be morally negative things. They could be amoral things that neglect the things that matter most. It's why Hebrews tells us don't let the root of bitterness grow up in you. It's because no one just wakes up and is all of a sudden wrathful or is all of a sudden malicious to the people they love the most. It slowly happened where you became discontent and there was no, let me tell you what there wasn't. There was never a time you looked in your spouse's eye and asked for forgiveness and received it. Because you may have said something like, well, I didn't need to do that. I know we forgive each other. We love each other. We're good. Everything's fine. Here's what I'll say. You never operate that way with, I hate to keep coming back to it, but like the gym. Do you ever wake up and go, you know what? (laughs) God knows my heart. Want to be fit. Don't have to go to the gym. It's already spoken. I want to be healthy. My wife agrees, I don't have to run. No, you have to go and do a thing that you don't want to do, sweat and all those things and, you know, to have weird cloths and stuff on your body. You know, get into the spin class and you got this person yelling at you. <laughs> Why? Because you know that you have to do that or the goal is not going to be met. Hear me, Christians, we oftentimes take for granted these gospel principles like forgiveness that Christ calls us to and the enemy loves that because he is sowing the seeds of discontent and bitterness that lead to slowly the parting of waves in the heart long before it's the parting of waves in another, you know, in the other realm, in the physical realm. I say all that to you to say, without a lens like this, it's easy to make shipwreck of that which you hold dear and Christ has called you to. And you never do it purposefully. No one rides on the boat and just decides, I am going to take a sledgehammer to the bottom of this boat. But it doesn't mean leaks don't happen. And so my prayer for you as a pastor is to say, having eternal lenses and taking seriously the things that Paul is saying here is not being flowery Christian. I'm going to be kind today. No, it's kindness that keeps you away from death. Keeps your heart from getting cold. Because, you know, if you don't actively try to be kind in this world, it's why you, you, know, you see people on the news that just pulled out their gun. That was the end when someone cut them off. You know? 
Someone cuts you off. That's the end of it. You know, whoa. If you don't actively try to be kind, you can become cold-hearted. Someone says something like, hey, you want to, you want to serve this week? You say something like, I've been serving. Way. Somebody else needs to serve. Somebody else's turn. Oh, where did that come from? Paul's giving us a way to live here, not just things that need to die, but things that have to be nurtured, fertile, come to life. So I'll end with this. How will we put on these attributes? How will we encourage these spirit rock characteristics? How do we vivify or bring to life things? Well, Paul gives us a few inclinations. Number one, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is some of the best news that we could ever get is that when you fight against sin, God is not against you, but on your side. What a wonderful thing. You know, I hate fighting against sin because it feels like it's, you know, two step back, two steps forward, three steps backwards at times. But it's wonderful to know that I'm not fighting against the king. He's with me. And I want to encourage you, no matter where you're at in that battle, Christ is with you. He's on that. He's at peace with you because of Christ. Let that rule your heart. Number two, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and teach one another, sing together, be grateful together. I don't know if you noticed, but there seems to be a theme of togetherness here. And so I want to leave you with one particular resolution that I think should be on your list. (laughs) Don't tell me if you don't do it, but it should be. And that is Christian community. Make this a goal and a value for yourself in 2023. Godly relationships. You need people who love you dearly. You need people who will get angry at you and then forgive you. And people who will ask for your forgiveness after they've mistreated you and you extend it to them. You need those people. And you need somebody who will do that that's not just your spouse. Okay? You're like, that happens all the time in my house. I don't need any more of it. Okay? You do need that. You do need that. And I wish I could spend more time on it. I don't have the time. But one of the reasons that marriages at times will get so bitter towards each other is because we think the primary sinner in life is just that other person. And it's because we don't have these other relationships so they can prove to you they're worse. Like, I actually like my wife a lot better because, man, I hate that guy. But I've learned to love him. Right? But we don't have those relationships. So what starts to happen is the enemy starts to convince you that you're living with the worst person in the world. No, you're living with someone who's battling sin like you are. You need those other relationships. You need people who will care about you, people who will honor you, people who want what's best for you, people who care more about God's will in your life than they care about whether you like them or not that day. Oh my goodness, if you find somebody like that, you should never let them go. Someone who cares more about God's will in your life than you than being likable to you, so rare. So rare because, you know, what's in it for them? You just hate them then and you alienate them and they don't have a friend now and it's all bad for them. Somebody that's willing to take that kind of hit, you should keep them around. Someone who tells you the truth, pushes you to grow, pushes you to lead, pushes you to serve, give, sacrifice, pray, fast. Oh man, what about a friend that would tell you when you came and all you wanted them to do was affirm all of their commiseration about all these people in their life that are terrible and they asked you, have you fasted about it and prayed? Now, I know in your heart of hearts, you're like, I would hate that person. That is the one person you should cling to. That's, the Proverbs say that's the one that you are like, yeah, I, the kings say, I need these people around. You need people who care about your kids and want them to know and love Jesus like you do. 
No, not just affinity friends. Like you need friends that play baseball with my kids. No, that's cool too. Okay, it's not nearly as important as you having friends who want the same things for their kids and your kids that you want for them. I told the nine o'clock service this, I'll tell you guys too, because he's not in here and they're young enough right now that they're not mad at me for using them as examples. But one of the prayers that I always have for my son Jonas, and I've added it in with my, for my daughter Jane, but I used to pray from very early on that God would send him a friend, at least one friend that's like Jonathan was a friend to David. That's what I wanted for him. Because the Bible tells us that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And David would go on to say that his love for him surpassed any love he had ever had from a, from a spouse. Which we mock David for that, right? Ha 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 ha, he loved some guy. That's real friendship. Jonathan's own father was the king trying to kill David and he loved David as a friend enough to save his life at great expense to himself. And I prayed often, God, just if you could send one friend, because you know what I know that I hate that it's true, but it is true, is my son one day, I won't be able to influence him as much. If, you have parent, if you're a parent of a teenager, you know this, it starts to slip away and they don't listen to you as much and all you want to do is just tell them, hey, you're, gonna be, you're being real dumb. And then they're like, no, mom, you're dumb. And you're like, get out of my house. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I know what's coming for me with my son is that I need someone who's going to be able to have an influence in his life that I'm not going to be able to have. And I think how great would it be if God would choose to send him someone who loved the Lord and loved him like I love him, you know? Because no, lo- you know, no one loves your kids like you love your kids. But, w- but how great would it be if God gave him friends like that, you know? If you're a parent in the room, you know, you're like jumping in front of your child, you, you know, save their life. Your spouse, same way. What if God sent them friends that would do that? You need people in your life that know their own faults and they desire to grow and they'll repent to you too. They're not just always on you, but they're actually looking to you as well. What I'm describing is deeply rooted gospel friendships, deeply rooted gospel community. And friends, I can't tell you how little we value this. And how much we should value it. It should be at the top of our list. And it's oftentimes, it's the first thing that would go. Like, well, we don't have time for it. We don't have this. We We would just toss it aside. And the Proverbs continually tell us, if you have people like this in your life, it's more precious than gold. Nothing's more precious than that. Relationship-wise, because you know what would make your marriage better? To have friendships like that. How cool would it be if you had friends that you could trust enough that they wanted more than anything else in the world for you and your wife or you and your husband to thrive? That they would stand in the gap for that. There was such a trust that you just knew you were around them all the time and all they do is encourage that because they believe in the glory of God in your covenant and they honored it that much. Who could put a price on that? And yet we do often and it's, it's cheaper than God would put on it. And so I want to encourage you this year to at least consider that. And if you don't have that in your life right now, here's what you should, I want to encourage you to do. Do what I'm doing for my son because he doesn't have that kid yet. You know, all his kids are snot-nosed and running around. I'm like, no, nah, definitely, definitely doesn't love the Lord. I've seen that kid, you know. Um, but I'm praying for that. And so you could pray for that for yourself too. Lord, help us to cultivate those kind of relationships. Help us to, to find those, send those people to us. And then finally, in all of your resolutions, to look at verse 17 and look at 
all of your resolutions through this lens. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's ultimately the question. The question is not, again, instinctual, response, reactive. What do I need to do in order to get better? No, the question is, how does my life look like Jesus? Where does it look like Christ? And where am I not in step with the gospel? And then asking God, help me to grow in your image and likeness in these areas. Telling your friends, I mean, your gospel, like true friends, hey, this is where I want to grow. That's where you have those conversations that don't look like the Etsy planner, right? Hey, I'm a gossip. Don't tell anyone. I need you to help me. Pray for me about this. And then finally, you know, you need to have Philippians chapter 3 looking forward to what lies ahead. Strive for the upward call of Christ Jesus. And what do you do? You forget what lies behind. 2022 is over. Okay. We all sigh. Oh, you know. But also what lies behind you is all of the things that seek to cling closely to you, the sin that needs to die. So it can die as Christ did on the cross for you and you can look forward. And that's my prayer for you. Let it die. And look forward to that which Christ calls you to this year. Let me pray for us. Father, I confess to you there is much to be said. But I I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would articulate the word to our hearts. Help us to be more like you, Lord Jesus. For my friends, under the sound of my voice, send people into their lives that they can have deep, meaningful friendships that love them dearly. And help us to be those kind of friends, Lord, to others. Help us to reject selfishness. God, cultivate in us that kind of community. And most importantly, my God, help us to live in light of verse 17, that everything we do in word or in deed would be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to you, our God and Father, through him. Help us now, we ask, in Jesus' good name. Amen.